The woke chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, is calling former President Trump a Nazi who attempted a coup. President Trump, for his part, is insulting General Milley and also insisting, quote, I'm not into coups. At the same time, there is potentially consequential evidence of voter fraud in Georgia just coming out. And with all of that going on, is it any wonder that huge swaths of America want to succeed? I'm Michael Knowles. It's The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back to the show. My favorite comment yesterday, quote, so when Joe Rogan states his opinion on the vaccine, it's don't listen to him. He's not a doctor. But when a teenage singer in 10 inch heels tells everyone to take the vaccine, everyone needs to listen to her immediately and go get vaccinated. Now you're getting it. Now you understand. That's how the science and the expertise works. If you ally with some scientists and the liberal blob, that's all good and your word is as good as the gospel. If you ally with other scientists and the dissidents, the people on the, on the right, the conservatives, then you are endangering public health and you need to be cast into the outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. Do you know where there isn't wailing and gnashing of teeth? On my Helix mattress, because it's so comfy. When I am on the road, one thing that I truly miss is my Helix mattress, because Helix makes a mattress designed for you. You're a very special person, okay? You don't just need the one-size-fits-all mattress. You want to know how exactly how soft, what's your weight, what's your size, what do you want? Well, Helix knows that everyone's unique. You take a sleep quiz. It takes like two seconds. It is very quick to take. They will match a perfect mattress for you. They will ship it out to you, and you will have a wonderful sleep. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick by GQ and Wired Magazine in 2020. You can go to helixsleep.com slash Knowles. Seriously, the sleep quiz will take two minutes and they will match you to a customized mattress for the best sleep of your life. They've got a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free, uh, but you're not going to return it, so it's no big deal. You, you can get it. Look, it feels great, you know, a 10-year warranty, but you, you truly will not need that. Helix is offering up to 200 bucks off all mattress orders right now and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash Knowles. Go to helixsleep.com slash Knowles for up to $200 off and two free pillows. Very serious allegations of voter fraud in Georgia. This coming from Tucker Carlson, who uncovered what's going on. Here are just the facts. We don't know very much more about this right now, but here's, here's what we do know. At least 36 batches of mail-in ballots from the election were double counted in Fulton County, where all of us were saying there were irregularities. And the blob told us that there were no irregularities in Fulton County. And how dare you suggest otherwise? And if you do, you're an insurrectionist, Nazi, coup-engaging secessionist or whatever. And uh, you'd be banned from social media if you said it. We said it anyway. It, we had to dance around the new rules because the censors really didn't want this, this stuff coming out. Well, now we know there were at least 36 batches of mail-ins that were double counted. That's a total of more than 4,000 votes. By the way, keep in mind, Biden won in Georgia by fewer than 13,000 votes. So this is 4,000 votes really matters here. 4,000 votes from that, from that batch that was double counted. Uh, those numbers come from a group called Voter GA, Voter Georgia, which had to sue to even get access to the ballots to see what was going on. The final tally from the double counts that we know about amounts to more than 3,300 votes for Joe Biden and 865 votes for Donald Trump. Uh, even the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is left-leaning, uh, agrees with this in theory. Uh, th there's an elections expert 
Uh, his name is Mark Davis. He analyzed data from the post office, because don't forget there's, there's widespread use of mail-in votes. He found that 35,000 Georgia voters had moved out of their county of residence more than a month prior to election day, making them ineligible to vote. So according to that election expert, 35,000 of those votes, not eligible. To remind you, 13,000 votes decided the election in Georgia. Are we we allowed to say this? Are we allowed to point this at? Tucker said it. He said it on television. So I'm hoping that gives us a little, but probably not. I think the rules are actually tighter on social media than they are in certain areas of TV. But if you suggest those hate facts, if you suggest those dangerous, evil, terrible truths, then you will, you will be smeared as a Nazi and a, a vile, bigot insurrectionist, which is what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is doing, Mark Milley. There's a great meme of General Milley going around where he's got pink Megan Rapino hair, and instead of all of his medals and, and uh, ribbons, he's just got the rainbow flag, even <laughs> BLM. It's him like, I don't know why people think that the army's gone woke. <laughs> I don't know. Listen up, soldier. Did you just misgender me? <laughs> so, so anyway, Milley is really, really going far left. And according to a new book, he said on the, of the Capitol riot, he said, quote, these guys are Nazis. They're boogaloo boys. They're proud boys. These are the same people we fought in World War II. Yeah, that's it. The, guy, the horn guy. The horn guy dancing on Pelosi's desk. The smiley guy with the lectern. They're, that, they're basically Adolf Eichmann, right? They're uh, Himmler, I think, is... I don't, I don't think so. I don't think horn guy is Dr. Mengele or Goebbels or Hitler or anyone else. I think Gen- uh, General Milley is just a hysterical little lib. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. I know he's a big, tough military guy, but he's really, really pathetic, really pathetic. As President Trump said, President Trump, you know, he doesn't have Twitter now, so he can't tweet, but he sends out these press statements that just are tweets. And, but there's no character limit, so sometimes they go on longer, but they, are, they just are his tweets. And then journalists will post some of them on Twitter, so it's a way for him to get around the ban. I, I have to read this one at length. This this statement from President Trump just, it pulled on my heartstrings because it reminded me how much Jack Dorsey took from us, how much I miss this man. His response to General Milley. Despite massive voter fraud and irregularities in the 2020 presidential election scam that we are now seeing play out in very big and important states, I never threatened or spoke to anyone a, a coup of our government. So ridiculous. Sorry to inform you, but an election is my form of coup. And, and this is one of the, one of the great lines. And if I was going to do a coup, one of the last people I would want to do it with is General Mark Milley. Why is that, Mr. President? He got his job only because the world's most overrated general, James Mattis, could not stand him, had no respect for him, and would not recommend him. To me, so hold on, wait a second. You're telling me that Mattis didn't like this guy, so so you appointed him to a position, Mr. President? Yes, he says. To me, the fact that Mattis didn't like him, just like Obama didn't like him and actually fired Milley, was a good thing, not a bad thing. I often act counter to people's advice who I don't respect. So now he's taking the opportunity to go after Milley and his apparent opponent, Jim Mattis, at the same time. In any respect, I lost respect for Milley. When we walked together to St. John's Church, which was still smoldering from a radical left fire set the day before, side by side, a walk that has now been proven to be totally appropriate. That's true. People said that it was awful and violent. They, they cleared the place of 
peaceful protesters, and that just isn't true. Even the mainstream media had to admit that now. And the following day, Milley choked like a dog in front of the fake news when they told him they thought he should have been walking with the president, which turned out to be incorrect. He apologized profusely, making it a big story instead of saying, I am proud to walk with and protect the president of the United States. Had he said that, it would have all been over, no big deal. But I saw at that moment, he had no courage or skill, certainly not the type of person I would be talking coup with. So I think it's probably ill-advised for President Trump to keep bringing up this hypothetical of what he would do if he were going to perpetrate a coup d'etat. But it's very funny. It's very Trumpy. And the points he's making here about Milley's lack of political courage, that is just obviously true. Whatever courage Milley has had on the battlefield, in the arena of politics, the guy licks his finger, puts it in the air, figures out which way the wind blows. And when it blows left, he goes with it. Then, Then the greatest line of this entire not tweet. He's not the type of person I would be talking coup with. I'm not into coups. I'm not into coups. In fact, around the same time, Milley, in a conversation, was an advocate of changing all the names of our military forts and bases. So he's going on that he's woke, he's left, he's terrible, and he's destroying the country. Really good, really good tweet from President Trump and really good point. I mean, it's funny and it's entertaining. And this is, this is something, by the way, when people go after President Trump for the tweets, you should know that Antonin Scalia, as, as urbane and educated and serious an American statesman as, as ever we've had in, in recent memory, he, he pursued the same strategy. Trump tweets with wild language and audacious statements and crazy capitalization because it gets your attention and then you read them. If he had issued a bland press statement, none of us would be reading it today, including me. Scalia did the same thing with his dissents. When he would lose a case and the, he felt it was a really bad decision, he would write a dissent that was often very funny. He would use words like applesauce and argle-bargle. He would use statements when they redefined marriage and, and pretended that there's a constitutional right to intimacy. Uh, Scalia made fun of that, and in it he said, uh, marriage d- uh, restricts rather than expands the right to intimacy. Ask the nearest hippie. Right? That, that's a, a kind of Trumpy statement. It's one that catches your attention. It catches the attention of law students. So I'm glad that, that Trump did that because what's going on in our federal government right now is radical, it's woke, it's insane, it's upending our traditional standards, but people aren't paying too much attention to it. Senator Cruz often refers to this as boring but radical, but it's kind of boring. It's just just the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he's just going to get critical race theory into into the reading list or the the, uh, chief naval operations or the heads of the various departments. They're just going to push radical policies and no one's going to say boo and Joe Biden's so boring that he doesn't attract a lot of attention. The, the DHS secretary right now, Mayorkas, is issuing a directive to the Cubans who are protesting against the communist regime. This is Mayorkas. This is the Biden administration. They've, they've actually told people to surge to the border at various times. Now he's saying to the Cubans, don't come. Allow me to be clear. If you take to the sea, you will not come to the United States. The time is never right to attempt migration by sea. To those who risk their lives doing so, this risk is not worth taking. Again, I repeat, do not risk your life attempting to enter the United States illegally. You will not come to the United States. By the way, the, the policy for decades in the United States with regard to Cuban illegal immigration was called wet foot, dry foot. If you got one foot onto American soil, you were given asylum you would not have to be returned to Cuba. And it's a great, great policy, especially because Cubans vote for Republicans. So it's a really, really love that policy. 
Uh, Barack Obama reversed that because he was sympathetic toward Cuba's communist government. And now Mayorkas is doubling down. What, what the administration is saying, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, is, hey, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, Mexico, flood over. Come over to our, board, uh, to our country. Cross the border illegally in record numbers. Oh, Cubans, the one Hispanic group that votes Republican, <laughs> no, the one Hispanic group that is not statistically very likely to vote for Democrats, yeah, don't come. Don't come. You stay there. Stay in your communist oppression. The whole situation just makes you want some relief. It's nauseating to think about what's going on. And when I'm feeling nauseated, I reach for relief band. There are lots of reasons that people can feel nauseated. Some of them pretty serious. Chemotherapy, for instance, or morning sickness, or migraines. I get a lot of migraines, anxiety. Some people, it's just a plain old hangover. And uh, whatever the cause of your nausea, you got to try out Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband. It has been clinically proven to work to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting. It's 100% drug-free. There are zero side effects. It's all natural. Michael, it sounds too good to be true. This is technology that was developed 20 years ago for use in hospitals. Now Relief Band is making that available to the people. There are, there are silly imitators that you, know, you try and it obviously won't do anything. Uh, you, you need the real deal. You need the one that is FDA cleared and clinically proven to work. As the world opens back up, do not let fear of nausea keep you back. A Relief Band has an exclusive offer right now for our listeners. If you go to reliefband.com, use promo code Knowles, you'll get 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. That is R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com. Promo code Knowles for 20% off plus free shipping. The official policy of the Biden administration with regard to communist Cuba is the refugees can't come here. Refugees from all over Latin America, come to the United States. Refugees from all over the Middle East, come to the United States. Refugees from huge swaths of Africa, come to the United States. Refugees from Cuba, too bad. Got to keep living under communism. They actually can't even call it communism. Jen Psaki was just asked about what's going on. She squirmed. She couldn't utter the word communism. Do you think that people are leaving Cuba because they don't like communism? I think we've been pretty clear that we think people are leaving Cuba or not leaving Cuba or protesting in the streets all as well because uh, they are opposed to the oppression, to the mismanagement of the government in the country. And we certainly support their right to protest. We support uh, their efforts to speak out against their treatment in Cuba. I will say separately, an important question is also what happens when people are seeking uh, protection or what happens when they are uh, attempting to flee. Uh, in the past, as I noted, we've had several humanitarian programs such as family reunification parole programs for both Haiti and Cuba. Those were policies or po uh, processes that were in place prior to the Trump administration. Those have, not, those have not been turned back on, as Secretary Mayorkas said yesterday. That was a lot of words to say yes. Wasn't that? Because the question was, do you think people are fleeing communism? The answer is yes. Th that's what the Cubans are saying it is. That's what serious observers are saying it is in the United States. But the government, our own government can't say yes. She said, I think we've been pretty clear. Blah, 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 blah. The, you see, and the thing, and the fact, and you know, and the but, and the heat. Well, that's not very clear. Not very clear at all. If the if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas because Jen Psaki's statement contained a lot of them. And she can't call out communism because not only is the United States government 
broadly sympathetic to the Castro communist regime, as Barack Obama proved when he tried to normalize relations without any concessions whatsoever, and when he downplayed communism in Havana, uh, but also because the American left is broadly sympathetic to communism. That's, that's not, an, that's not a, a, an overstatement. It's not hyperbolic. Now, whenever you invoke communism, this is one of the major ideological developments of the past century and a half. It was very, had played a very significant role in the politics of the last century. Whenever you mention communism, you're told, oh, that's the Red Scare. Oh, you're worried about a phantom. Oh, you're worried. It's just imaginary. Communism is one of the most consequential political movements that has ever existed. The communist empire in the Soviet Union still existed 30 years ago. It was, it was still up. It was still moving. There were still communist governments on earth. And the American left has always been very sympathetic to it. In some cases, they openly defended it. In some cases, they deceived our own government and got into hot, very high positions of power in the government. I'm thinking of Alger Hiss. I'm thinking of Harry Dexter White. I'm thinking of many, many other communists in the government to advocate for communism. And we're not, we're not even going to mention it now. BLM is an explicitly Marxist organization. Huge numbers of leftist professors who are forming the minds of the next generation of Americans are openly Marxists. And this is why, by the way, so BLM, that's what's going on in the streets right now. That is the, the terrorist wing of the Democratic Party. BLM is openly defending the Cuban regime. BLM sent out a statement, quote, Black, I'm, I'm now truncated. It was a very, very long statement, but it wasn't as funny as Trump. So I'll just, just read the highlights. Black Lives Matter condemns the U.S. federal government's inhumane treatment of Cubans. Pause right there. The Cubans living in the United States seem to be thriving. You know, they've got, I don't know if you've been to Miami recently, they're living their best life. Okay. They're, they're doing a lot better than the Cubans are doing in Cuba, where the Cuban government actually is oppressing them. Uh, BLM urges the United States to immediately lift the economic embargo. The people of Cuba are being punished by the U.S. government because the country has maintained its commitment to sovereignty and self-determination. U.S. leaders have tried to crush this revolution for decades, right? This, the, the communist regime in Cuba, which is now 60 years old, is still called the revolution. This is why the communist leaders like Fidel Castro still wear military fatigues because they're, they're obviously just the, the dictatorship, the corrupt, the corrupt government there, but they have to pretend that they're still revolutionaries because the revolution is always perpetual on the left. Now we look to President Biden to end the embargo, something Barack Obama called for in 2016. This embargo is a blatant violation of human rights and it must come to an end. The Cuban protesters don't agree with BLM. The Cuban protesters wave as their chief symbol of protest, the American flag. They sew it onto their blue jeans. They put American flag stickers onto their bicycles. I saw it myself. That is the protest symbol in Cuba. In the United States, leftists shill for the communist regime in Cuba and they burn the American flag and they disrespect the American flag. Not just the fringe radicals, not just the BLM terrorists in the streets, but professional football players, elected Democrats, all the way up. They disrespect the American flag. That's the difference. That's the difference. Is it any wonder then that huge swaths of the country want to secede? They do. We talked about this yesterday, the civil war, because you're getting, you're getting a lot of civil war rhetoric from Joe Biden. Joe Biden keeps invoking the civil war. You're not getting a lot of civil war rhetoric from Republican leaders or conservative leaders. I don't think the, the conservatives and the Republicans are that eager to wage a civil war or anything like that. But according to a new poll, there are a lot of Republicans, especially in the South, 
who favor secession. And by the way, there are a lot of Democrats who favor secession, especially in the Pacific Northwest. A poll conducted by YouGov in conjunction with Brightline Watch asked this question. Would you support or oppose your state seceding from the United States to join a new union with a list of some new states in the union? It varies, obviously, by state. 37% overall want to dissolve the union. 37% of Americans, period, want to dissolve the United States. Not a good sign. Uh, Republicans and independents in the South, so independents as well, not just Republicans, were uh, favorable to secession. 66% of the Republicans in the South, 50% of the independents. But then even of the Democrats, it's almost the same number. 47% of Democrats in Pacific states said that they want to break off. And huge portions of independents in the heartland and the mountain states also want to form their own country. Why? Why do they want to do this? Because as a matter of culture and increasingly as a matter of official policy, we are living in different countries. There is, a, there is a major disagreement about what the country is. This is one of the aspects that I cover in my book, Speechless. In the 1970s, when the second wave feminists came in and they said the personal is the political, they upended all of the settled norms and standards and rituals and traditions of our culture. So everything was up for political debate. This is why now we have political debates over our running shoes and our chicken sandwiches. So, and what a man is. We can't even agree what a man is or what a woman is. So because we have all of these d- debates right now, we have radically different views. In order to have a country, you need to have some things in common. And so that can be any number of things. That can be religion. Well, we increasingly don't have that. It can be race. Many countries in the world have a common race, but the United States does not. This was the joke yesterday when the economist was shocked that the Italian soccer team was made up of Italians. No one would. No one is shocked that the Nigerian soccer team is made up of Nigerians, but the Italians, it's not allowed to be made up of Italians. But in the United States, we obviously don't have a common race. It can be a common language. Increasingly, we don't even have a common language, right? A lot of people notably will speak Spanish and and will not be encouraged to assimilate and learn English. But even the people who speak English don't speak a common language because some people call Bruce Jenner, Bruce Jenner and call him he. And some people call Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner and call him her. And so even the people who are speaking English are not speaking the same language. And we have different national symbols. The conservatives have the American flag, the stars and stripes, and the leftists have the rainbow flag and the BLM flag. And those are the different symbols of different countries. So it's no wonder that people want to secede. They're seeing the, they're seeing this secession happening before their very eyes. The only question is if one is going to acknowledge it. And the only way that we're going to survive as a country with these kinds of troubling numbers is if, is not maximizing everyone's individual choice to believe whatever they want and define their own concept of existence. It is to insist upon a unified standard and get everybody on the same page on certain fundamental matters. At the very least, who's a man and who's a woman? Who is a man? Who is a woman? That is a question that really is very troubling these days. And the emojis are not, are not making this any easier. Emoji is releasing new, you know, the little pictures of people that you put in text messages. So they're releasing new emojis, including a pregnant man. So it's a man with a mustache with a big belly and he's kind of holding his belly. And I was trying to think, is there any way to see the glass half full here to find a silver lining in this storm cloud of sexual confusion? And I thought, yes, I finally have an emoji to represent how I feel after I eat a a delicious hoagie. So I've never had that emoji before. You know, maybe I do a smiley face or a sleepy face, but no, 
it's it's a man rubbing his belly with a smile on his face. That that is my. I now can express myself. I'm I'm pleased. Some people are going to be confused though and believe that it suggests that a man can become pregnant when in fact a man cannot become pregnant. But in our emojis, don't forget, they're not just little pictures. They are part of our language. They are how we communicate. And the younger you are, the more more likely you are to be adept at communicating in this way like like the ancient Egyptians with hieroglyphics. You'll understand more what the meaning of the emojis is, the various ironies and things like that. So people are making fun of the pregnant man now. But as language persists, this will just come to be considered normal. Mark my words. Big tech is going to insist on that. Because right now, by the way, if you question it, if you say, you know, Bruce Jenner is a man or something, uh, you are at grave risk of being booted from social media, from communications platforms. And, and so you, won't, you, you will be silenced. You won't be able to communicate at all. And the Biden administration wants to ramp this up. So uh, Joe Biden's surge in general right now is calling on big tech to impose even greater penalties on people who post misinformation about COVID-19 and about the vaccine. Misinformation. They want to slow the spread of misinformation and they want to punish information that is false, inaccurate, or misleading according to the best available evidence. And there's the problem. There is the problem about the best available evidence. Because if you had asked me uh, when the vaccines were first announced, hey, should, should young people who are at statistically very, very little risk of dying of COVID, should they take the vaccine? I, I would have said no, because the vaccines almost certainly pose some risk. I mean, they, they do pose a risk because we didn't really know very much about them. And I think it could be dangerous to young people. And young people don't face a grave danger from the virus. So no, they shouldn't, they shouldn't get the vaccine. And unless they're absolutely impelled to do it. But then it's a political reason. It's not a scientific or medical reason to get the vaccine. And, and according to the best available evidence at that time, that was misinformation. Because we were told by all the genius experts, the vaccines are 100% safe. There is no risk whatsoever for anybody. And then what we find out, the FDA and the CDC are saying the Johnson and Johnson vaccine causes blood clots in some cases in women. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine, we are told by, by the actual public health professionals now and the agencies is causing uh, rare side effects and a nerve, nervous system side effect in men and women. We're told that the mRNA vaccines are causing myocarditis in young people where this would be rare, very rare to experience otherwise. Those are, so I would have been right, but because I was telling the truth in the face of the genius experts, that would have been called misinformation. This is how the, the regime operates. The information changes, but the imposition does not. And people want you to get that vaccine. In California now, I think we actually predicted this on this show. I don't remember the exact circumstance, but I do remember talking about this in the hypothetical. In California now, they are so desperate to get people to take the vaccine that they are offering them marijuana, the sin spinach, the devil's lettuce, joints for jabs in Long Beach, California. People who are age 21 and older who get vaccinated at a pop-up clinic will receive a token for redeemable for one pre-rolled joint, quote, to encourage equitable distribution of the COVID vaccine. Coronavirus is a respiratory infection. It causes people to cough. That's, it makes it difficult to breathe. And in very extreme cases, you need to be intubated. And so to convince you to get the vaccine to allegedly protect your lungs, 
they are going to give you a drug that rips up your lungs. That is the logic of our genius public health professionals. Because by the way, everyone wants the vaccine, right? Because by the way, COVID's so, so dangerous. It's so dangerous that no one wants the vaccine. The vaccine, which is so wonderful that nobody wants it, they, they've actually got to bribe potheads with drugs to get it. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Speaking of dubious medical science, up in America's hat, our neighbors up there in Canada, the Toronto Police Department is refusing to confirm the biological sex of an alleged child sex offender. Uh, The Daily Wire reached out for comment to this police department, and the police department said that the information is, quote, irrelevant. And uh, instead, they just discussed this this sex abuser's uh, gender identity and preferred pronouns. The authorities in Canada, but you know, it's America's hat. It's on its way here. The authorities are now saying that sex is irrelevant to a sex crime case. It's irrelevant. doesn't matter. And it's, this guy's obviously a dude. His, he goes by Ruby E.B. He's a 33-year-old. He has sexually abused others in the past. You can see a picture of him. He's obviously a dude. But the, the woke PD up in Toronto will not acknowledge that because that might be offensive to the child molester. And we can't do that. But really, it would just be offensive to the liberal regime, which is trying to redefine all of reality up to and including nature. This is going to cause a a political realignment, some rethinking. Historically speaking, conservatives are the group that supports the military and the police. Back the blue, you know, support our troops, right? That sort of thing. Those organizations, the PDs and the military, were some of the last holdouts against infiltration by the left, which had at that point taken over virtually every other institution. And now that's broken down. The the BLM riots of 2020, the exploitation of George Floyd dying, was in no small part a move to infiltrate the police departments, to defund, to abolish, and really just to infiltrate and to to exercise some uh, influence over it. So a lot of police just quit. A lot of conservative police officers just quit. That was the point. The woke army ad that we covered on this show where we were told that the way to prepare to fight a war is to have two lesbian parents that take you to pride parades. The, the woke CIA ad where we were told the way to defeat our enemies is by being a woke, intersectional, Latinist, feminist, whatever, you know. Uh, those were not accidents. The, the reason that those ads are put out there is to discourage conservatives from joining the, and remaining in those institutions and to encourage leftists to go into them. And they're working. And they're working. So now conservatives are going to be looking at some of the enforcement arms of the dominant liberal regime, and they're probably not going to be quite as supportive. Because if if back the blue means that you've got to refuse to acknowledge the sex of a child molester, if if back the blue means, if if support our troops means that you've got to support critical race theory being taught in our military by woke generals who call conservatives Nazis, why then I suppose we can't really do that anymore. I think what we really have to do is go back in and retake those institutions and, and defend those institutions and, and re, re-embrace some old sturdy standards. You know, Candace does this sort of thing very well. That woman does not mince words. Candace is going to be talking on her latest episode about Cuba, communism, and the democratic death cult. It's available right now on demand for Daily Wire members. If you have not yet subscribed, get 25% off a new membership with code Candace at dailywire.com slash subscribe. And also you can pre-order Ben's book. Ben's book is a great book to pre-order right after you have ordered Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Thank you to those who have reviewed it, who have have 
bought the book, made it a number one national bestseller. Such a great bestseller that the New York Times decided to snub it. We appreciate that. Once you order that book, then you got to order The Authoritarian Moment by Ben, uh, for, if for no other reason than because that will be my campaign slogan in 2028. Go check that out right now. We'll be right back with the mailbag. My favorite time of the week, the mailbag. First question from Camille. Hey, Michael. I recently found out that men and women both value sense of humor when looking for a partner, but the way each sex defines that is different. Women define it as someone who can make them laugh, while men define it as someone who will laugh at their jokes. I have also heard that men uh, wouldn't want to date someone funnier than them. Now, I'm not saying I'm a comedian, but I humbly will say that I'm quite funny. Do you believe the aforementioned statements, and do you think a woman should tone it down when dating a man, at least early on? There is something to be said about playing the game when it comes to dating and not revealing too much of yourself. But what about being yourself when looking for a long-term partner, since that is what will create a deep and real relationship? Thanks. Sincerely, funny how, like I amuse you. It's a great name to sign off with, Camille. This is generally true. Men generally do not care if women are funny. Men generally value a sense of humor in in women more. Christopher Hitchens wrote an infamous essay about this called Why Women Aren't Funny. It was in Vanity Fair. He said there were three carve-outs of of women who, he said, generally they're not funny, but they can be funny if they are. His words, not mine. Hefty or dykey or Jewish or some combination of those things. And and you, people were very offended when he wrote this. But then you look and say, hey, no, some women are funny, like Ellen DeGeneres, oh, or like uh, Roseanne Barr, oh, or like Sarah Silver, oh, okay. And so it generally falls into that category. Um, however, I actually do value funny women. I do. I will say this. I know I know. If this is not particularly conservative or, or traditional of me. I really value how funny Sweet Little Lilies is. She's, she's genuinely funny. Maybe it's because we, we grew up in New York, you know, you get certain milieu. Sometimes you get uh, people who are a little bit funnier in those kind of places. Uh, she is. She's genuinely funny. And she, she will come out with a quip, like a really quick line. And I love it. And I actually, I v- seriously value that. Uh, but it is generally speaking, men don't really care about that as much because they find women beautiful. And women are just n- not physically attracted to men in the same way that men are physically attracted to women. So men, men have to be funny in order to attract women, which is uh, w- one of the reasons that things have developed that way. But, uh, but if you're a funny woman, and you know, especially if you fall into one of the carve-outs that Christopher Hitchens permitted, then uh, you know, more power to you. I think it's great. From Benjamin, hey, Mr. Knowles, listening to your show, I notice you talk about a lot of negative and even dark topics, such as the decline of the West, abortion, the redefinition of marriage, etc. Yet, uh, you do it with a smile on your face. What is the source of your optimism? Kind regards. My optimism is not optimism. Optimism is just a feeling. It's just an emotion. And uh, so I don't rely on that. I think it's just the flip side of pessimism. I have hope, which is not just a feeling. It is a fact. It is a theological virtue. And my hope is this, that my savior lives and I know how the story ends. You hear from the left that they have this faith in progress, 
progress and utopia, right? The, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So I don't believe that. I don't think things are getting better and better and better. Quite to the contrary, I think things generally are getting worse and worse and worse, but I do think there is a happy ending. So I, I think this actually allows you to be a little bit sunnier than progressives. Progressives have convinced themselves that things are going to be really good in the long run, but because they've convinced themselves that they're going to get better the whole time, then when things get worse, they get extremely angry and they yell and they scream and they, you know, it's like the woman screaming no when Trump won the election because it just wasn't supposed to happen according to their worldview. Whereas for me, I just assume that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until the good Lord comes to take us all up. And so when things do get a little better temporarily, I'm pleasantly surprised. But when things continue to get worse, I'm, I'm also somewhat pleased because I was right. <laughs> and because I know that ultimately, ultimately things turn out very well if, uh, if one keeps the faith. Which is, by the way, that is a, a demand, you know. Uh, when one is just morose and depressed and, you know, Obviously, there's such a thing as clinical depression, and they're, you know, that they're, these are just things that one cannot, you know, necessarily overcome with just a smile on your face. But there is also the social conditioning of being morose and negative and upset and depressed all the time, and that's bad. I mean, that's a sin. You're actually not permitted to do that. You need courage. You need hope. It is a virtue, and uh, so so do it, and then things will turn out just fine. From Cambrai, my friend and I bought a pig from the local fair. When I went to transfer the money from my savings account to my checking account to pay for the pig, my bank would not allow the transfer to go through because the memo line pig could be seen as offensive to some people, like ugly people, right, to who, you, who one would call pigs, to, pe- to people on the receiving end of Donald Trump's mean tweets. Even my bank is holding my money hostage until I conform to the language they think is correct. How are we supposed to deal with companies as they continue to make their policies more and more extreme? Sincerely, they're baking me angry. <laughs> I really like this new trend among the listeners to sign off like in these advice columns with these very silly, silly names. Uh, yes, that, that is the way that, that uh, language works. And, and the way politics works is that the, our political opponents are much better at this, but everyone tries to manipulate language to give them an advantage. One hopes you manipulate language within the bounds of reality and truth. And what the left does is they manipulate language to invert reality and invert truth. The lesson to me from this is not that the bank is doing something wrong and this is crazy and what's this is cancel pigs are being canceled. Uh, the lesson for me is we need institutional power. The lesson is the left has institutional power to redefine all the words and to say that some words are off limits and some words are not. And so we can whine about that, but we actually just need to get institutional power and we need to wield it and we need to set the standards ourselves. And the left did the hard work of, of amassing that power and wielding it. And we need to do that too. From Jessica. Hello there, swarthy Catholic Sultan. Hello there, Jessica. Wow. What a, what a saucy title you've given me. Uh, It seems like every generation is weary of their successors, claiming that they will be the worst generation yet. I'm a young millennial, but definitely feel like Gen Z is going to run the country and world into the ground. I mean, have you seen what they find funny on TikTok and other social media? It's quite concerning. Maybe I'm overly cynical, but what are your thoughts on the next generation and the validity of intergenerational skepticism? Sincerely, get off my lawn. Tell you, Jessica, I, I have a different view. I'm really pleased about the Zoomers. I think the Zoomers, the the generation that comes after the millennials, 
uh, give me a great deal of hope. I think in many ways they're much more conservative than the millennials. The millennials are kind of the Obama generation, so it's just that shallow, lame, kind of bland liberalism. And so the Zoomers have more radical views at the moment, also because they're just younger and younger people tend to have kookier views. But I think they see through a lot of the lies and platitudes and canards of the dominant liberal regime. And I think, I think actually the Zoomers have quite a lot to teach millennials about, about politics. I'm not saying things are necessarily improving. And I think obviously since the 1960s, we've just been in a free fall as a matter of culture and politics. But, but I, I do have a glimmer to risk looking on the bright side. I do, I do see a glimmer of hope in the next generation. From Peter. Hey, Michael, I'm a 27-year-old survivor of blood cancer. Prior to my cancer experience, I did not consider myself to be religious. However, throughout my experience battling the disease, I found myself praying. When I was first diagnosed at 23, I was politically on the left, or so I thought, by default, living in a blue state. Years later, I consider myself a conservative with a much deeper sense of faith. I truly think that facing my mortality pushed me in this direction. It's made me think that so many Americans, particularly on the left, turn away from God because of their lack of awareness of their own mortality. Do you believe this could be true? I feel like people used to be more aware of their mortality, more familiar with death, which in turn made them more familiar with God. Perhaps there are atheists in the world who would truly be able to face what seems like certain death without asking for God's grace, but this was not my experience. P.S. Speechless is fascinating and deeply important. Thank you for all you do. Thanks. Hey, well, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Uh, Yes, uh, the recognition of mortality will make one more aware of God. Not just because you get scared of the dark and you want some comfort. I don't think that's how it works at all. I agree with C.S. Lewis that if you look for truth, you might find comfort in the end, but if you look for comfort, you'll find neither truth nor comfort, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. However, (laughs) most people, when they ignore mortality, are are just ignoring reality. I mean, everyone who ignores mortality is just ignoring reality. Mortality is a fact. It's a truth. And so when you encounter that truth, you begin to ask other questions about the nature of truth and the nature of reality. One of which is, how does this world exist? How is it that all of these contingent beings, such as myself in this world, exist? Must there be some necessary being rather than a contingent being. This would be one argument for the existence of God. How is it that caused beings, such as myself, I did not cause myself to come into existence. How, how, did, how, how do all of these caused beings make sense if there's not an uncaused cause? That would be another argument for the existence of God. How is it the case that if some things are better than other things, right, as we all know that there are, that there is not some ultimate good? There is necessarily some ultimate. That would be another argument for the existence of God. There are many more arguments for the existence of God, the God that I think the experience of mortality will give you. There's a famous line from Dr. Johnson who says, depend upon it, sir, when a man is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. The fact is hanging does concentrate the mind and the recognition of your own mortality or the mortality of others can, it's not that it will scare you into running away from the hard truth that there is no God or whatever, it's that it will show you a truth. And the implication of that is, I think, that quite clearly that there is God. From Peter. Hey, Michael. I've heard an argument from woke Christians who claim that non-binary genders are actually biblical. This seems clearly false uh, because in Genesis, God created mankind as male and female, right? But they argue that the description of God's creation of clear dualities was only meant to represent the ends of vast overlapping spectrums. For example, we have night and day, but also dawn, dusk, and twilight, and sky and sea creatures but also water, fowl, and amphibians. That makes sense to me. 
But they claim this nuance also applies to the duality of male and female. How do you respond to this? Thanks. Well, uh, it's a very clever argument to obscure the plain fact of, for instance, the book of Genesis. But then I would fast forward to the gospel according to St. Matthew when Christ explains what marriage is. And when he explains what marriage is, he says, God, God created, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but God, God creates marriage such that a man and a woman will leave their parents and cleave to one another and what God has joined, let no man rip asunder. He doesn't say that, uh, well, for one, he doesn't say that uh, men and men will join together and this will be identical to marriage, right? That this is actually, actually marriage involves no sexual difference whatsoever. He certainly doesn't say that. Uh, but likewise, he doesn't say that half men, trans, pan, whatever, will join with a half goat, amphibian, whatever, you know, and then they'll, no, it's, he's, he's quite clear. He's reaffirming what, what you see in Genesis. And so I, I think, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't mince his words. I don't, I think it would be very, very difficult to, you know, even if one tried to take some preposterous, ahistorical, uh, you know, delusional reading of, of Genesis, uh, there's also all those other books of the Bible. So I, I just don't think that's, that's really very effective. Final question. Jason, hey, Michael, I was raised Protestant but entered the Roman Catholic Church on Pentecost of this year. I do not know many fellow Catholics, particularly any young women, if you get me. Okay. My, my question is, how can I meet a grounded, practicing Catholic woman in a world so caught up in sin and vice? I admit I'm picky and I have zero interest in scouting bars and other places for women. And I certainly don't want the accompanying temptations. Maybe I should try attending a traditional Latin mass. Tough day for that, pal. Uh, P.S. Please say a prayer for me and my brother cops. We're doing our best, even in this tumultuous moment. Very respectfully, Jason. Story we didn't get to. I'll have to get to it next week. The Pope today has made it uh, very difficult to go to a Latin Mass. He's reversed the order of Pope Benedict, which reauthorized the use of the traditional Latin Mass, which brought many, many young Catholics, including myself, back into the church. It was a very key factor in those reversions and conversions. And I guess the Pope didn't like that very much. So... You should go attend a Latin Mass while you still can. There are lots of cute, cute young women there, and you'll find a good gal. Uh, so hurry up. I'd go, I'd go while you can. Hurry up, everybody. Time's running out. I'm Michael Knowles. It's The Michael Knowles Show. I will see you Monday. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Andrew Clavin Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Ben Davies. Executive producer, Jeremy Bory. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producers, Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Production manager, Pavel Vidovsky. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Audio mixer, Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup by Nika Geneva. And production coordinator, McKenna Waters. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Hey everybody, this is Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. You know, some people are depressed because the republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon's turned to blood. But on The Andrew Claven Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew Claven Show and laugh your way through the fall of the republic with me, Andrew Claven. <laughs>